Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by Miller and Chevalier. I am Lauren Pons, international tax and tax policy lawyer with Miller and Chevalier, and I'm excited to be joined by my new colleague and co-host, tax litigator Robert Kovacev. Rob, why don't you take a few minutes to introduce yourself and your practice to our audience? Sure. Well, I've been a member of Miller and Chevalier for only two months. And uh, before that, I was uh, at a couple of other law firms here in the district. Before that, I was a senior litigation counsel in the U.S. Department of Justice in the tax division. And while I was there, I was uh, had first chair responsibility for some of the largest civil tax cases in the nation. And uh, now I've used the tools that I learned at DOJ uh, to work for taxpayers as they litigate against the IRS. Okay, great. So we're going to get more into our topic today. Uh, but to remind folks who, who listen to our podcast and maybe newcomers, the idea behind Tax Break is to provide our listeners with some perspective on select tax issues that we think are interesting. And we want to go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so our listeners can follow along without some kind of technical tax document in front of them. As always, first, we have to do a disclaimer. Tax break is not intended to be legal advice, and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its content reflects only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts or guests. So today we're going to get into the specifics of a chief counsel memorandum that was issued last fall addressing substantive and procedural requirements for sub- submitting what the IRS would deem to be a valid claim for the RE credit refund. Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this memorandum and why it's so significant? Well, on October 15th, 2021, which is a Friday and also filing day for you know so many of uh, you know, tax returns, late in the afternoon, uh, the IRS issued uh, this uh, memorandum and it was written by chief counsel and it uh, had a very you know, benign title, something about refund claim uh, you know, procedural requirements. But when you look at it, it was actually a very detailed uh, discussion of brand new, very burdensome procedural requirements that are that the IRS is now requiring for any refund claim for research credits to actually have in the refund claim itself. And if it's not contained within the four corners, then they're going to reject the claim and not even consider it on the merits. Okay. And these procedural requirements... I've heard that they're a little bit more than procedural. They sound actually quite substantive. Can you get into what those are? Sure. Now, technically, when you file a refund claim, you have your 1120X or 1065X or 1040X, uh, you have to provide some sort of specific statement uh, about why you're entitled to a refund. And courts have interpreted that to mean you provide enough information that the IRS knows the basic ground, why you want a refund, and will be able to conduct an intelligent investigation through IDRs and through examination to find out whether you're entitled to it. And the uh, IRS memo went far beyond that legal standard. It includes specific requirements, including listing every business component for which you're claiming a research credit. For each business component, you need to list all the individuals for which you claim you know, that they conducted qualified research. And for each individual, you need to provide a narrative, basically, explaining what it is that he or her was thinking about and trying to uh, to uh, research in conducting those activities. 
those aspects have never been required in a refund claim. And the last one in particular is particularly burdensome and has never you know, been required, often doesn't even come up in examinations. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like they're trying to kind of conduct the exam in advance of having to actually conduct the exam. But then in terms of the substance of what you might be trying to find out in your research, oftentimes that might not necessarily be known, right? I mean, I think about all kinds of research, you might have a larger goal, end goal in mind, but the specifics about what you're actually researching could still be, um, you know, undetermined or unknown. Right. I think that's exactly right. I think it's, um, it, it provides nothing but confusion for the people who have to prepare, you know, prepare these refund claims for the scientists and engineers and the other people conducting research who have to provide information to the tax people who are, you know, who are preparing it. The IRS has a genuine tax administration uh, problem that they're trying to address. They receive about 2,500 research credit refund claims every year. And they simply do not have the resources to conduct a thorough examination of all of those claims. By its nature, the research credit is very factual in nature. You have to look at specifics about what was the research, what business components did it apply to, and there are a lot of factors that go into it. They're very factual uh, inquiries. So for the IRS to look at a claim, which is sometimes just a bare bones claim, where it just has 1120X and then the Form 6765, which is the research credit you know, tax form, and that's it, it's difficult for the IRS to know whether they should pay it out or not. So that's the dilemma that the IRS is trying to address. The problem is here they've gone about it the wrong way. And I understand the memo also has a um, couple of statements about the statute of limitations and what happens when these refund claims might be rejected. What's the impact of, or potential impact of, of kind of the procedural timeline that the, that the memo lays out and what happens if taxpayers don't follow those, those timelines uh, in the right way? Hidden in the back of the memo, I'm talking page 21, 22 uh, of a 22-page memo, there's something which uh, I call a, a slow walking strategy. And here's what it says. And this memo, which is going to be read by field agents, people at service centers are looking at these claims. And the slow walking strategy is this. If a taxpayer files a claim and it has not been acted on by the time the statute of limitations runs for that year, they can no longer change the claim. They can't amend it. They can't cure it if it's deficient. So the, the memo goes on, if, you know, if the IRS were to get a claim and hold on to it until the statute of limitations passes, then reject it as insufficient for not following these new procedures, then it would be too late for the taxpayer to address those concerns and try to cure any defect. And if the, at that point the taxpayer decided to go to court to challenge it, the IRS would argue that there's no subject matter jurisdiction because there was never a refund claim that was valid that was filed in the first place, and they would ask the court to throw it out without ever reaching the merits. That sounds a little bit like, you know, heads, we win, tails, you lose. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it seems unfair from a taxpayer perspective when taxpayers are not in control of how soon the service will take up any kind of claim, well, this a refund claim or any other. Um, or review amended returns. We don't have any control over that. So what 
what might taxpayers be able to do? And is this allowed? It seems like um, there might be some kind of way for taxpayers to assert in some kind of litigation that this delay was, um, you know, unreasonable in some kind of way. I know that sounds more like an equitable argument than a legal argument, but. Sure. Well, there, there are a number of problems with, uh, with the memorandum. The first one is the requirements for what goes in the refund claim, it's in a regulation, uh, 6402-2. You know, if you want to change that, the right way to do it is to promulgate a new regulation and then have it go through the notice and comment procedures and all the other procedural protections that are contained in the Administrative Procedures Act. The IRS right. used this memo to end run around all the procedural protections that taxpayers have you know, under, under the APA. Because it's, so they've really, I'm sorry, they've really gone a step further because you went over the specificity requirement in, in 6402-2, but they want to amplify that specificity requirement by putting forth these burdensome new requirements, not in a regulation, but in a memo to the field. And so don't we have some recent cases where the, the service tried to do an in-run around regulations and got into some trouble with sub-regulatory guidance. Yes, that's right. There was a recent Supreme Court case in CIC services. There's a Sixth Circuit case called Man Construction. Uh, and there are a couple other cases like that where the IRS issues a notice which had certain requirements. And if you didn't follow the requirements, you could you know, suffer a penalty. And the courts have held that if you're going to have you know, a, a notice which is purportedly not law, just a statement of uh, litigation position for the agency, but if you disobey the notice, you have these uh, potentially severe, negative, real-life you know, consequences. If you're going to do that, then basically it should be a regulation and it should be uh, promulgated in accordance with the APA. And I think there's the, the problem the IRS has is this legal memo has no force of law. It's not a regulation. It's not even a revenue procedure. It is literally a lawyer's memo. And that has no precedential value and it has uh, you know, it's owed no deference in the courts. So the same problem that arises with the notices and the CIC services and construction, you see exactly the same problem here where you have the IRS basically taking an end run around the procedural requirements of the APA and then acting if that they they actually you know have issued something that has the force of law. Right. With real consequences, to your point. You know, if the claim is denied, you're done as a taxpayer if the statute is run. Right. That, I mean, it's a very, very serious potential consequence that, you know, that uh, that a taxpayer faces if they file a claim and then it sits there and then the statute of limitations run and then the IRS, you know, with a slow walking strategy comes in and hits them with a, you know, with a notice saying, sorry, you've been rejected. You're out of luck. So we have a potential APA claim, uh, but what else can taxpayers do in terms of litigation strategy or options? Well, there are a few things that uh, taxpayers who intend to file research credit refund claims should be doing right now. And the first one is make your claim as fulsome as possible. It may be a practical impossibility to check all the boxes with these onerous requirements, but you should do the best you can. Get as much information as you can and put it in the claim to the extent that that's, that's possible. Second, you should be aware of the statute of limitations for your year. 
often taxpayers will file a refund claim with a couple weeks left in, you know, in the statute just to try and get it in under the wire. With the slow walking strategy, that becomes a very risky proposition because there's no time for you to, to amend or, or cure any defects. You're just, you could just be out of luck. So it makes sense if you can to file your refund claim with plenty of time left in the statute. Um, and then finally, if your claim has been filed and it's sitting there and it sits and it sits and it sits and the statute date is approaching, you're faced with a choice. Uh, you are allowed to file a refund, a refund suit in Court of Federal Claims or Federal District Court if the IRS denies your claim or after six months has passed with no action. So once you pass that six months, you can go into court, you can have a federal judge decide your case on the merits. And taxpayers should carefully consider whether if the IRS is slow walking your claim and that date's coming up, maybe you should go ahead and file uh, your lawsuit. And then that way, at least you know that there'll be an independent arbiter who will look at it on the merits. But because of that, that slow walking strategy and the six month rule combined and the statute of limitations, time constraint, taxpayers essentially shouldn't file their refund claim any later than two and a half years into the statute, more or less, right? Which, which is unrealistic. Uh, you know, yeah. in some, you can't require, you know, that sometimes, uh, sometimes claims are not discovered uh, until the last yep. minute. So, you know, that is definitely, you know, a risk that those taxpayers will face. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's helpful. And uh, we should also note that the memo does provide an opportunity to cure if they don't reject it out of hand. So, but it's a very short window, right? It's only 45 days. Um, and then you're back where you began, essentially. Right. Well, I mean, part of the, part of the, uh, when they rolled out the memo, they said that it would take effect on January 10th of 2022. So it's been in effect now for about six months. They also said that for the first year, there would be a transition period. During that year, the IRS committed that they would review the claim, and if it was deficient, they would send a letter that would give an opportunity to cure and would do so within a certain period of time. And then you'd have 45 days to cure. Problem is, after that year's over, on January 10th, 2023, the IRS is making no promises whatsoever. So, you know, while we right now they're going to send you be nice in their view. And, t- and tell you that you violated their um, their new requirements and what you need to fix. Uh, on January 11th, 2023, uh, apparently they feel no obligation to tell taxpayers anything. Other than, yes, it's accepted or no, it's not. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, um, this is all very helpful information, but I think it's also good to hear maybe some tales from the trenches that you would have for uh, taxpayers just to let them know what they should be thinking about as they prepare these claims, kind of from the perspective of things you've seen as a government lawyer and also things you've seen as counsel for taxpayers, um, things to keep in mind. Well, two things uh, that are particularly true for research credit claims. The first one is they are intensely factual, as I mentioned before. That means you need to get your facts lined up early on. And you can get a research credit study by one of the big four or any of the number of service providers that do it. But that's not enough because if it's an exam or it goes to litigation, you will need to have your testimony 
from people conducting the research. You'll have to have documentation, contemporaneous documentation showing what was going on, PowerPoint presentations to the board or to you know some you know scientific advisory committee uh, that are documenting exactly what was going on and show that there was uncertainty and show that the scientific method was, was followed and so forth. So I think that's the one thing to do is if you're going to have a claim, you basically have to prepare an audit file uh, that has all that information. You can't just rely on the research credit study and you know and go home. Uh, the second part is, if you get to litigation, you're in the merits, taxpayers have an inherent advantage. It's their science, it's their research, it's their industry, it's their company. They know what's going on and some IRS agent just doesn't, even if sometimes they think they do. So the one advantage you have in exam, and particularly in litigation where you have a neutral you know, judge who's you know, hearing all this for the first time with no preconceived notions and probably little, if any, background in the tax law, much less in you know, research credit uh, regulations, is you can control the narrative by having your in-house experts explain exactly what, what the science is and why, you know, why there was uncertainty. Why is the company doing this? Why does it matter? And that will put you far above um, and beyond what uh, the government's able to do without, you know, even when they hire experts and when they can, you know, you know, put on their case because you have that inherent advantage. That's very good advice. And I agree. I mean, I think some people listening might think, oh, preparing an audit file, it sounds expensive. It sounds burdensome. It sounds time intensive, but the, the stakes for these refund claims are quite high. Are they not? These are, these are high, value refund claims, generally speaking. And so it could be well worth the effort and the expense to prepare in order to be successful with your with your claim. I mean, absolutely. And you know, in this country, uh, the research credit is one of the relatively few ways that the government actually supports research and development, as opposed to our economic rivals in Europe and, and China, which provide much um, greater you know, governmental support to, uh, you know, to you know, high tech and to, to science and to, and to research, which is why it's particularly distressing, just from a, a national, you know, national security and economic viewpoint, that uh, the IRS has taken this action, which basically knocks out one of the few uh, supports that the government provides for research and development here in the United States. This has been a great conversation. Do you have any any parting words for us? One last uh, nugget before we we uh, wrap for today. Plus, if you remember nothing else, remember the statute date and always keep track of that because that could mean life or death for your claim. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Rob. I'm excited. This was our, our first of, of many episodes to come. Um, for those who've been listening, we appreciate your support. And we welcome your feedback. So please uh, get in touch if you ha- if you would like to communicate with us. We have a web uh, an email address podcasts at milchev.com. That's p o d c a s t s at m i l c h e v dot com. And we will look forward to our next episode. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Laura. Bye.